This hot, this the spot, there it is, pod.com. We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them. We're talking about life and life to stream right to you from the microphone right to your home, dude. Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo, because there it is. Welcome to the There It Is podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thank you so much for listening, you longtime listeners, and thank you, you first-time listeners, for joining us. Great episode today. We have author, journalist, and screenwriter Teresa Lowe with us. Very excited to have her very interesting career that she's had, and we talk about all these different things that she does and she does comedy on top of all that other work she's known for and it's a very fun and and great chat i think you'll enjoy it first i just want to let people know or remind you that you can listen to the podcast on apple Podcasts, stitcher and soundcloud but you can also listen to it on amazon music and of course if you have a dot you can just tell alexa to play there it is podcast and it'll play and on youtube we have a youtube page and we are putting up all of our previous episodes on there and we put brand new episodes up later in the week on thursdays usually and so check that out and we have links for that stuff in the bio All right, well, let's just get to today's episode. As I said, it's a great, fun chat. Why don't we just get right to it? Here's my chat with Teresa Lowe. You are such an impressive person because you're such a Um, (laughs) multi-hyphenate. You've done a ton. I found out about you because of comedy and then looking you up because of interests of having you on the podcast, I very quickly saw that you have been doing a ton of things for many years now, and you have a master's in fine arts from University of Southern California, and yeah. you have uh, so much work in the, in, in, the, in the can, so to speak, when it comes to broadcasting, and you've done acting work and, and TV work, but you've also written a couple of books. You're an author, you've written a couple of bestsellers. It's amazing. Uh, and then a couple of years ago, you decided to then start doing comedy and you've had some success there. What would you say is your first love? My first love? Um, I think that my first love is being creative. And then from there, it's like wherever I can find an avenue. So like sometimes I'll do something and I'll get to be free and be creative. And then it gets to the point where that doesn't get to happen anymore. And then I move on to something else. And so I guess it comes down to just like project by project is, you know, what works for me. Cause like, like say for instance, um, right now I'm a journalist for hustler magazine and I've been a journalist at other places too, but like hustler allows me to just, uh, you know, say whatever I want and like the topics that I write about are fun versus like other places were very restrictive. And so I think it kind of just comes down to the freedom of each genre. So right now with comedy, for instance, I'm pretty new to comedy. So I get to say whatever I want. I don't know if it'll ever get to the point where I don't know if I ever, let's say I ever got a show or something like that. And it's like networks are breathing down my neck and it's not fun anymore. I, I think it'll just change to, mm-hmm. uh, I guess it's about freedom for me. 
Right, I get that. Um, you mentioned that you're a journalist at Hustler, and of course, there's the old joke that people make about Playboy, a competitor of yours. Uh, <laughs> people would always say, uh, "Yeah, yeah, no, no, I'm just reading the articles." Uh, <laughs> I didn't know that was an aspect of Hustler. Well, not only that, like Hustler, um, they have like very funny political cartoons like not only just the articles are fun but it's like they're like you know because we were talking about politics earlier it's like they are very anti-trump like one of our christmas cards i think it was last year's christmas card was literally someone shooting donald trump and then the joke about like oh something about you know like when donald trump said something about he could shoot someone on like fifth avenue and get away with it Mm -hmm. so the christmas card was someone shooting donald trump uh, on the street and getting away with it. So it's kind of like um, how many work environments have jokes like that and allow you to say stuff like that. And not only that, publish that in their magazine and that's actually their brand. So they're, uh, yeah, they do everything. Larry Flint definitely hates uh, <laughs> Republicans. <laughs> um, did anyone get visited by the Secret Service after that was printed? Do you know? I don't know. Like I remember that the card was on some sort of like political blog like people were hating on that because it was a christmas card so it was only sent to like you know friends of hustler employees and whatnot but um someone did take a picture of it and put it on a political blog i don't sure i wasn't sure if it was like breitbart or what but then like you know i don't think anything happened from that Hmm. that's interesting yeah i mean it's also kind of interesting that um while there are some christian trump supporters who wouldn't like the content, they have to appreciate that it was at least a Christmas card and not a holiday card, right? <laughs> oh, maybe it was a holiday card. Okay, so maybe, <laughs> okay. maybe I was wrong about that because I don't, there was no like Christmas tree or anything like that. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so, yeah, I think part of when you talk about freedom, I think part of having so many different irons and different fires is freedom, right? I mean, that is why we pursue those kinds of careers where where we can do a bunch of different things. I mean, I consider myself an actor and comedian and broadcaster, and you have even more, you have those things and more on your your LinkedIn. Um, (laughs) And I feel like there's freedom to that, where you have all these different avenues that you can go down to, to seek work and to seek fulfillment. Would you agree with that? I agree with that. I also think that for artists is that, you know, you know, you live in New York. I live in L.A. where it's like we live in expensive cities where for the most part, like typically one job is not going to be enough to help us make a living. So it's almost like we have to be hyphenates and we have to like, you know, have so many avenues to make income or meet people that I think it's almost like a means of survival as well as just like something creatively that we need to do for our ourselves. It's like mm-hmm. you have to do it and you, you know, for different avenues. Right. Let's talk about the books you've written. When you decided to write those books, was your focus being an author or was it one of those things you were doing? I'm, I'm not sure on the the reason I ask that is because I'm not sure on the time frame of when you get out of school, you get out of uh, out of uh, graduate school, and what you pursued first. Was it writing or was it doing some of the TV work that you did? 
So I was in graduate school and I studied screenwriting. And then, so what happened for me is that I noticed that I was putting in so much work with scripts. People would read them. Some people liked them. Some people didn't, but it's like none of them were getting made. So it's like just seen by just a very small amount of people. And I just thought to myself, if I write, you know, short stories, even if I write like a book, it actually can be seen by audiences and not just like gatekeepers. And so I took like an office job and, you know, it was like pretty easy, but I just had to sit there. And so I had so much extra time that I would just write while I was at this office job. So I wrote my first book while I was also like, you know, being like a secretary. And um, just from there, I ended up self-publishing the book and it actually did really well. So my method of like, oh, if I just reach audiences directly and bypass third parties, then I can actually prove to myself, not only that people want to read my work, but that there are people who want to read my work. Mm. Oh, well, that's a great method, great approach. You're right, though. You know, when people are in school, they're writing a whole bunch. And so you're kind of putting yourself out there a lot and you're putting a lot of energy into something that is, it's not like you're getting it pitched. You're, you're just sharing it with the people who are going to kind of uh, tap their chin and judge it and then toss it aside and move on. But with what you did, you had this opportunity to say like, well, why don't I just make stuff and put it out there because that's what I want to do. Yeah. I mean, one important lesson that I learned about this whole gatekeeper nonsense is that like, if your work is good, but then just, you know, you don't have hype or you don't have buzz around it. Like it will just sit there and die. And you, some people just mistakenly believe like, oh, my work wasn't good. Like for instance, I wrote um, this script and I submitted it to all these people and people told me that it was a good script. I knew it was a good script, but like nothing was happening. And then finally I had someone who had like clout in the industry and he said it was good. And then all of a sudden everyone's like, this script is amazing. And it actually started moving forward. But I was like, this is the same script that years ago, people just kind of like, you know, were like, oh, it's fine. And like, didn't care. But then all of a sudden, like someone with influence said it was good. And all of a sudden doors changed, but it was like the same piece of writing. And so with that, I think I was more into going directly to people and bypassing like industry people, just because I was just like, I want to be read essentially. Right. Right. That was about what, 10 ish years ago when you uh, got out of school and started writing. Uh, like so wrote I, I went to school, grad school from 07, 09. Mm -hmm. And then I think I'm trying to think of the timeline. I think I wrote the book or I started on it. And I think like 2010. And then I can't remember what year I actually published it. But yeah, it's been a while since the first book came out. 2013, maybe that the first book was or 12, I 2012. I think it was around that time. And then even before that, it was like I had pre-planned the story. Like I always knew I wanted to write something about like um, Stole Kansas has this like backstory to it where it's like supposed to be the gateway to hell. And so that was Stole Kansas, like near Lawrence, Kansas, where I went to undergrad. And so I've always been trying to like figure out how to do it. So I was originally going to write it as a script. And then I was having all these bad experiences with screenwriting and trying to like get stuff seen in Hollywood. And so then I just decided, no, I'm going to do it as a book. So that, yeah, it's around the timeline of like what you were talking about, like 2012, 2013, something like that. Okay. And, you know, with the way technology is now and uh, uh, it's just putting out your work, it, in, in regards to you talking about gatekeepers, it's so much easier now 
for someone to self-release things and um, use the internet to their advantage. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Like, um, like for instance, I even, I made a song. It was like very stupid and it was like making, not, I wasn't, I don't know if I would use the word making fun of Ben Shapiro, but it was like a rap about Ben Shapiro. And then I just uploaded it myself. And I remember like when I was trying to work with, Oh yeah. Thank you. When I was like trying to work with like a friend, um, we, we were working on it like months and months ago. And then he was like, I don't like it. And I was like, Oh, let's just put it out anyway. And then he didn't want to do it. And so I eventually just put it out myself. And I think it's that thing. It's that, yeah. Like with the internet, it's like, you can just do things yourself. You don't have to wait. And then not only that, if it's a bomb, it just disappears and no one cares and you can try again. So it's like, I'm very much into people just, you know, doing things yourself. I mean, you still need a team of some sort, but you don't have a gatekeeper problem. Exactly. And, um, you know, and sometimes maybe the gatekeeper problem is just in regards to the algorithms of the social media that you're using. But you can also easily get around that if you can just promote it, if you just have enough uh scratch lying around that you get <laughs> so even then the gatekeeper problem isn't as big of a deal and you're right you can't just put it out and if nobody sees it nobody likes it then it's just kind of you know who cares because it doesn't yeah. burn you, it, you know, it's, exactly it doesn't burn you in any way so it's like just try you know it's like that's right. the thing to try right and also stick to itiveness is such a big part of this right i mean I've been doing this podcast for over four years, and I've noticed it this year grow in numbers. And um, I don't know what that is other than just I've been doing it consistently. But if I had given up a couple of years ago, then this definitely wouldn't be happening now. (laughs) I think you're right about the consistency thing is that, like, there's all these things that everybody wants to do something. It's like everyone's like, oh, I want to, like, lose 20 pounds or I want to do this or, you know, like everyone has all these goals. Right. But it's like who actually will put in the work. And so it comes down to like half the battle is, are you going to be the last person standing? Right. Right. For sure. Um, when, when you wrote your book, so one of the, your books uh, is called hell's game and that one did quite well as did uh, the red lantern scandals. And uh, are they both considered young adult novels? No. So Red Lantern Scandals, I kind of like deviated from. um, So Hell's Game was a young adult horror novel. And then um, Red Lantern Scandals was more about like 25 year old like club girls. Um, So it was a little bit about based on my life where I was like. A, like a club hostess at like this big Asian nightclub. And so I was kind of like writing about that. Um, and so I kind of uh, deviated a little bit from genre. And I think that at the time I was like, oh, should I keep writing young adult? Should I keep writing horror? Because I did one thing first and it did well. But then I was like, nah, I'm just going to write what I want to write. And then like maybe like short term, it would have been smarter to just keep writing horror but instead i was like no i'm just going to build a portfolio of things i like and then i guess if is that thing about you know time like with time it didn't matter that my portfolio was so different but at right. short term it was a little off mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. do you have anything off like any any do you have any books uh that you hope to come out with sometime soon are you working on on anything 
I'm working on a book right now, but I, you know, it's funny is that I have been working on this one book for like a while and I haven't even gotten to the manuscript phase because I keep changing the ideas and the outlines. I know like the general idea of what I want to do, but like I haven't gotten to the stage of writing the manuscript yet. And so I don't even know if I want to talk about it yet because I have no idea when I'll ever finish this one. So we'll see. Well, let's talk about the process of writing a novel because um, there's a lot to it that I don't necessarily know. So when you say uh, you're not even at the manuscript phase, what does that mean necessarily? Is, are, is it that you are still trying to outline what the story would be before you just write out the whole book? Because I think a lot of people would assume you just write the book. <laughs> yeah, like it's very interesting because I am very like I actually have a such a process to writing a book that I, I even wanted to like teach it. It's like I could teach the steps, but will people actually do it? But it's like these are the steps that I have to how I actually was able to complete the books in the past was that. You know, the pre-planning, I think, is what takes the longest. Even when I wrote Hell's Game, like when I actually sat down and wrote it, once I had the outline and I knew where the story was going, it only took a few months. And then I like uh, got hired an editor and then I fixed it. But like writing it was the fastest part. Mm -hmm. But the pre-planning took so long. So it's like my method is have a general idea, then have the characters and then write out your plot like uh, do like an outline kind of thing, like, you know, break it down into acts, break it down into chapters. And from the outline phase, it's like, you can kind of see like, oh, this story isn't going nowhere or, oh, this story would only fill up like 20 pages like that. Uh -huh. And from that, you're like, could I actually fill over a hundred thousand words with this? And so even in the phase where I'm at now with this new novel, I'm like, I'm probably only at a short story phase. And so okay. it's not really like novel big enough for a novel. How do you know when you're putting out, plotting out that outline that it has enough to be a thousand words? I think it's like when you're breaking it down, if you break it down by chapters and you like, so let's say you write down like your story of like, how is this beginning, middle, end? And then you start putting it into chapters of like, you know, each chapter needs to be kind of a cliffhanger. And so if you have so many chapters and you're like, oh, how many words would I put in this chapter? Or how, you know, how much plot would go in this chapter? And then you really start to just kind of see like, oh, there's not enough here. How will I fill the space? And so it's like when you start to like, break it down in that way. Cause I think a lot of people, when they want to write a book, they make the mistake of they just start writing. And I think that works with like a short story, something like 5,000 words. But if you want to write something like a hundred thousand words, but you don't have a, a game plan, you don't have a path, then you could actually probably get to like 30,000 words, like your act one. And then you're like, Oh my gosh, I have nowhere to go. And so it's kind of a mistake to, to do that. And I think that's what kind of stops people from finishing their first book. Interesting. And I guess uh, one of the pitfalls can be someone trying to stretch something that really isn't 100,000 words, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they're trying to make it that. Yeah, because then it starts to meander and then it's like, mm. you know, you can write something and if nobody likes it, sure, you you finished it, you liked it yourself, but it's like, was that worth your time, you know? And I think, you know, no one would make a movie without pre-planning. No one would write like, you know, a play without some pre-planning. So it comes down to the novels the same way. You need to like 
plan it and you can't like what you're talking about. You can't waste your, your time just to fill pages. Right. I read a book (laughs) like that actually (laughs) where it just seemed really thin and the stuff that they used to try to extend it was pretty cliche. And And you could tell as the reader, right? right? Like you could see it. So it's like, why would anyone want to put their name on something like that? It's like the audience can see it, you know? What was so funny too about that particular book was that the author kept writing uh, things like, he holds my gaze. I hold their gaze. (laughs) My gaze falls upon such and such. It's like I started, it was so many that I started highlighting every time (laughs) she used the phrase gaze. (laughs) (laughs) his gaze their gaze and uh i think it was ended up being like maybe 140 sometimes in the book that they used it and i was like what in the world is this person doing it's almost like when you're in college and the professor is like i need a thousand word essay you could just tell someone took one sentence and is like putting the thesaurus and like expanding and you're like please stop like we're adults we don't need to do this (laughs) Um, well, that's an interesting process uh, of writing a book. And when you started getting into re- the other writing work that you do, I mean, reporting and, and uh, journalism, how do you, what do you draw from in that? I mean, when you're in school learning about writing, you kind of end up doing it all. Uh, but how do you differentiate the different ones? journalism there's kind of a formula for journalism or at least with articles um I don't know if I'm using the right phrase I think it's the called the inverted pyramid where it's like the most important thing is at the top and then you kind of just you know like put the less important things at the end Mm -hmm. and I think like that strategy helps a lot with articles where you're like okay if people stop reading it in the first paragraph did they get as much information of the who what when and where and you put it there and then the rest of it you can start putting in the details later Mm -hmm. and I think that formula helps like I think with it comes to writing there is kind of like formulas for each medium and like once you understand that it actually makes it easier to be creative because you're like oh I know what these steps can be and so um like you know when I did screenwriting uh, that program was so much about this formula like so USC has this uh formula for screenwriting called sequences where there's eight sequences and each sequence this has to happen and this has to happen but then it's it's funny because you know you'll see a different film and they'll break down these sequences but the films are so different they're so creative that like once you know that these like you know uh i don't know it's calling them formulas which don't sound like you know very creative but but once you know them Mm -hmm. they help make things just so much easier right do you ever experience the that with when you're writing one thing it's it's not that it's hard but it's just not flowing necessarily because you're not as into it maybe or it just it doesn't seem like the sparks are there but then with other mediums they are there that happens to me like that's kind of happening to me right now with this book like this new book Mm -hmm. that i'm writing because i have tried to come up with all these different like you know, plots and, you know, different twists and whatnot. And it's just not working. And it's not something I want to abandon completely. But at the same time, I'm like, if I'm bored with it, why would a reader like it, you know, and so then I move on to something else. And so sometimes I think like, 
when we get writer's block, I do wonder, it's like, are we really that into it? And if we're not into it, maybe it's time to do something else and just switch over. And because sometimes the inspiration will pop out of nowhere. Like even writing Hell's Game, Hell's Game, uh, the plot of that is like these kids, they play a game and each level they're in hell. Each level is like a different, um, one of the seven deadly sins. But before that, I had another idea where it was like, oh, this married couple and the husband goes to the cemetery at night and gets like possessed by a demon. And when I was trying to come up with that, like husband possessed story, I couldn't fill the um, hundred thousand words, you know? And so I kept trying, it wasn't working. And I just kind of kept sitting on that. And then for some reason, whatever, I can't remember why it happened, but with Hell's Game finally clicked for me. I moved away from that like husband story. So I, I kind of wonder what the process is that if sometimes if you're just really blocked, there might be a reason. Maybe it's just not exciting to you. Yeah, that's a really good method. I think a really good point because, yeah, maybe maybe you're just not feeling it in that moment or maybe it's just like you said, like you're just not into it. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you're just not. It's like so simple. You're just like, I'm no, not into it, you know. Yeah, I like that uh, that you mentioned that because I don't know. Uh, to, you're being very honest, I feel like. And, <laughs> and some people aren't necessarily honest about these things when I'm reading interviews. And it's like, just admit that you didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like what like you're talking about, like, the honesty, right? Like when you read that book and you're like, this is so thin. It's like if that writer was just honest and said like, hey, this is more of a short story than a novel, maybe there would be no like gazing. Pages, pages, you know. <laughs> oh gosh, there were like a few on the same page. Uh, at one point, I was like, I, I got to put this down right now. At, at, at some point, I was just sort of hate reading it. You know, I like, <laughs> love to hate reading it. Um, <laughs> it was, in, it was enjoyable for that reason and that reason alone. <laughs> I think I wrote a review on it, and I kept talking. I kept saying like, hold my gaze and stuff. Um, anyway. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> you did a television show that was a film and TV review show. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? That was uh, eight-ish years ago. How long did you do that? Yeah. Um, I can't remember the year, but eight-ish years sounds about right. Like, um, it was called Just Seen It. Mm -hmm. And so what happened is this guy, he was really into, like, Siskel and Ebert. So he wanted to make his own, like, review show. And he wanted to make it, like you know, smart where people like critique, you know, so he got people with like uh, film school backgrounds and whatnot. And um, eventually it like played on PBS. It was on Hulu for a while. And it was a fun experience because you just got to like watch movies and critique them. Yeah, I guess you could fall back on your masters. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like, but I think I wasn't the best reviewer because I almost liked everything. Like, <laughs> I would <laughs> yeah, because we would be watching like Adam Sandler movies, and I was like, "This is great." Everyone else would be like, "No, this is terrible." I was like, "Why?" I just laughed because I don't know. For me, I'm very not snobby about stuff, but I, I, I would have probably the same critique you had, where like, if someone's being dishonest, where like they're trying to pull a fast one, like, "Oh, you just didn't have anything to say," and you're just trying to like make money or something. Yeah, I would critique that. Mm -hmm. But if there's like you know, someone's trying to be like joyous and stupid and like it's supposed to be stupid, then I feel like you shouldn't critique them the same way you'd critique like an Oscar winning film. Yeah. So I kind of think it's like each piece has a place. Uh -huh. And if it's like 
the best in the place it's supposed to be. And I, I want to respect that. Yeah, I've felt that for over 20 years now. I've said, why don't crit- critics judge it based on what it's supposed to be? Because, or like at least judge it within the spirit of what is intended. Because mm-hmm. it's fair, it's totally fair, I think, for someone to say, well, here are more sophisticated ways to write a script or tell a story and this movie either did or did not do that. It's fine to talk about that. But when a movie is just kind of standard and hits the things it needs to hit to be enjoyable because it's really just trying to be an enjoyable movie, I feel like you are being disingenuous as a critic if you're not acknowledging that and you're just saying, well, it's a standard way of telling a story. It's like, yeah, but the the point wasn't to be impressive with that. It was supposed to be a, a joyful and a, a fun experience. And can you speak to that at all and not ignore it like it's not there? And even that, like the idea of being standard, it's actually so hard. It's actually so hard to even make a stupid movie that people can actually sit and watch for an hour and a half. Like, like there's so much crap where you're like, I couldn't even watch 10 minutes of this. Right. But like if something you can watch from start to end and you're like, oh, that hit all the beats, that is actually still incredibly hard. And I think the problem with critics is that a lot of critics can't do. And I think that when people actually start to do things, like it's harder to critique others. Like for instance, as a writer, I can critique other people's writings, but like I can still find, I can still see what they're trying to do. Like, it's hard for me to just be like, this sucks. They're just so stupid because I'm like, no, I I have to understand their process. And the same thing with other things, like even like stand up and comedy where I'm like, oh, they were trying to do this. Maybe it failed for whatever reason, but I'm a little more forgiving because I'm like, this is really hard to create and let alone like have the idea, but to execute successfully. So I'm like, like, I think that's the problem with critics is that if they've never done it before, it's just easy to be like, this is terrible. You know? <laughs> well, that reminds me of uh, how a lot of athletes will complain about someone who's never played the game and <laughs> really going hard on them. And it's like, well, you don't know how hard this actually is. <laughs> yeah, it's like you go up there and do it. You know, like I feel like that's the best excuse is like you do it then. Because there was a period of time, I can't remember when it was, but like I used to just be like one of those like trolls and I'd always be like, blah, 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 like complaining all the time. And then I remember reading someone's like response is like, you do it then. And I was like, that's true. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's something else. And it kind of reminds me, like we're talking about, about not hitting the marks or maybe not being particularly sophisticated, but hitting the marks. A movie like Tommy Wiseau's The Room is Mm. something that, to me, there's something marvelous about it because it's not how you write a script. It's not how you direct a film. It's not how you present a film through editing. (laughs) And it it misses all of these fundamentals of filmmaking. And yet, and it really doesn't hit the beats at all (laughs) well either. But somehow, that is such a delightful movie for me to watch. (laughs) And it's not even entirely like 
pointing and laughing and going, ho, 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 so stupid. Mm -hmm. There is something else happening. There is some sort of special thing that happens <laughs> when I'm watching that movie, mm -hmm. despite its failure. I don't, I can't even wrap my brain around it. I think it's the joy and how serious he took it. Like, it was so yeah. terrible, right? But, the like, passion. he... But you felt like this man thought it was brilliant. And in a way, you're like, oh, that's so sweet. It's almost like when like a kid shows you like a drawing and they took it seriously, even if it's good or bad. You're like, oh, that's so yeah. nice. And I kind of think that's the difference between like the room versus like, like a cash grab. Like yeah. when it's a cash grab that they're trying to like just pull something over on you, you get kind of annoyed. Right. But when it's yeah. like so genuine, even if it's so bad, you're like, well, that's cool like good for you you know and i think people felt that he tried i i think you're onto something because there are those movies where uh it's a cash grab and they have a good cast and crew and and the director knows and the editors they know how to set up the beats and the actors are kind of they're, they're maybe so good or, or have such good chemistry that you uh observe their performance as being pretty solid you know it's like it's it's their greatness again you know like like i don't know uh, there are a lot of good actors who are in bad movies uh, that are cr cash grab movies and mm -hmm. then you go on just not into it you know <laughs> like you, you watch it and you're like yeah this person was good in it and it's not like there was anything fundamentally wrong but this movie just wasn't enjoyable at the end of the day or it was fine, but I'm going to forget about it. And it's I think that's what it has to do with it. There's not really any passion put behind it. It was just everybody on autopilot. Yeah, and I think that's the thing with, like, everywhere you go is, like, you know, even going into, like, a coffee shop, right? You feel the difference between the barista who's, like, happy to be there, the one who, like, wants you to die. You know, it's uh -huh. like you could feel the difference. And I feel like the most everyone, it's like, I think there has to be something where you have to feel amount of joy. And I think that when people lose the joy in whatever they're doing is like, people can feel that. And it's like, you don't want to be a part of that art. And I think that like what you're talking about, like, yeah, with like big movies and whatnot, it's like, you can tell and it's not fun. And I think it's that even as an artist, it's like, if it's not fun for you at a certain point, it may be better to just walk away instead of just do the motions. Yeah. Yeah, I I totally agree. Or even just like, you know, there's that that coffee shop you go into and it's just like standard and you get in, you get what you want, you get out. But then there's a coffee shop you can go into that has some character and some passion behind it and maybe the coffee isn't even any good than the standard <laughs> place, but right. you prefer it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I do like, you know, before the pandemic happened, I produced uh, stand up shows in LA live ones. And I think the difference of why people kept coming back is like, I literally just said hi to people. Like I was like, but like, I've been to shows where it was like so cold where like they act, almost acted like, why are you here as a guest? If you didn't know someone where you're like, well, why would I come back here? You don't seem like you want me here. And it seems like this is a party I'm not invited to. Mm -hmm. So that when I started producing shows, I was like, I want to make sure everyone feels comfortable and likes being here. And, but it's like strange where it's like, it seemed like such a simple concept, but a lot of people don't seem to either care or, or want to do it to do that. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and I hadn't thought of it that way. And, and some people just have a certain spirit that just makes people feel better. And it's it's partly because maybe they're being gregarious and talking to people and being welcoming, but also maybe just something natural about you, you know? That's what I hope so. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's what I hope. Yeah, I mean, like, I think it's like, you know, I just, I, I feel like for me, like growing up, you know, I grew up in this really small town in Kansas. And um, when I was really young, I was like bullied a lot for being Asian. And so it was like really important for me to like not be a hater, you know, because I was like, I know how it feels to be mistreated. And so like, I guess I kind of like live my life trying to be like, but I'm not like, like, I'm not where I'm nice to everyone where like, if someone is a rude person, I'm not going to go out of my way to like, you know, try to be fr- like, I'm not that right. forgiving. But at the same time, I'm like, if there's someone who's just out there, I'm like, I want to f- them to not feel terrible, you know, because I, I feel like I always just knew how that felt. Uh, uh, there was something you mentioned a couple minutes ago about in stand up when we're kind of judging or not ju- judging is too strong of a word, but just sort of critiquing what other people did. And we're saying like, yeah, I see where they were trying to go. I see what they were trying to do, but they, for whatever reason, just didn't come off right. And it's maybe if they make these tweaks, that is such a crucial thing. I think about comedy that is maybe only r- truly understood by people who create comedy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Because I hear a lot of people who, it seems like most people don't know that that's, that is the correct way to critique comedy. It's to say like, it's to recognize what they were trying to do and then just see where they missed um, and not assume malice. But I think what the average person does is assumes malice. Even when they say like, I see what they were trying to do. But da 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 da, and it's like oh, but all that da 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 you just gave me <laughs> is so <laughs> far off from what they can accomplish. <laughs> <laughs> but I I like conversations with comics about this because they will they will be able to sort of pinpoint that thing that it's hey we're all just trying stuff we're really just trying to make people laugh no one's trying to hurt any feelings or insult anybody and we're taking material and saying like maybe there's something here and so we're just trying stuff (laughs) so that's where the well i see what they were trying to do comes in yeah it's interesting because like for instance if someone's on stage and they're making like these really like offensive jokes but they're trying to be observational but it's like okay i can see they're trying i don't like it but i can see what but what i don't like when it actually comes to like real malice is like when they're not doing well so they start to pick on individual people and even if it's just because they have a lack of skill and that's what they're i i like i cringe at that where i'm like i don't forgive that kind of like comedy which i still a lot of people do but like but when it comes to just bad jokes i feel like you can kind of see the two differences because one thing that like i notice when like there's like mean comics is like if they get a laugh then they keep going with that meanness and then i'm like oh okay you were hoping that you basically being a bully was gonna work for you and it did you know and that that's when i'm like meh but if it just comes to, like, bad jokes, then I'll be more forgiving for that. Yeah, absolutely how I feel. There was a sh- – I used to run a show in, when I lived in South Carolina or help run a show. And there was someone who came as an open mic. 
And somebody mm. came and just started telling anti-Semitic jokes yeah. that were like street jokes and just mortified the entire audience. Like no one liked it. And he was just a complete, like he was just a monster. It was mm -hmm. only the second <laughs> time there. And he, I, I was kind of blindsided by the fact that he told those jokes because he didn't act like that the first time he was there. Mm. Um, and he snapped on a lady in the audience who called him out for doing wow. the jokes. And that was the sort of thing where it's like, okay, there is no, I see what you're trying to do, but you, right. <laughs> because right. that guy was just, you can't just say anti-Semitic things. And then that like, but I'm just trying to get a laugh. It's like you, that's not, mm -hmm. that's not a laugh that you're trying to get. That's not, that's honestly not, not a laugh. <laughs> you're not, you're not yeah. trying to get Jewish people to laugh at that. So right, exactly. you're not trying and, to get a laugh if you're not trying to get them to laugh at it. Exactly. And I think that's the thing, too. It's that like artists can almost spot other artists trying and can also spot when someone's pretending to use art to just exactly. be a bad person. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but then when there's something like maybe a controversial, controversial joke that Sarah Silverman tells or someone, mm -hmm. you know, that famous. And people say, well, I, that's where I'm like, I know what she's trying to do. Uh, <laughs> and then sometimes there's a famous person like this, uh, Kathy Griffin, uh, that picture, that infamous picture from a couple oh, years back yeah. with the beheaded Donald Trump, where I was like, I don't see what you're trying to do. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, I don't get where there's a joke here. I don't get what you're trying to do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it's not funny. I feel like that was a pure just attention grab. Like yeah. there was no like there's no punchline behind it. But at the same time, you're like, I guess I get you're trying to get attention, which she did get. But yeah. I was I think that's when like as other artists, you're kind of like, uh, that was just for attention. And then it's like that's when people get kind of that's when it gets iffy because it's like we're all trying to get attention. But then right. it's like, don't you want attention from thought? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's like, yeah. I totally agree. Yeah, that's sort of like guess shock jock type of mentality gone wrong yeah but at the same time i was like well i guess it succeeded so i mean like I don't right know. yeah gone wrong in the sense that it it didn't weave any sort of nuance because you're supposed to like stir something up if you're going to do shock jock but not actually uh, uh violate anything that's true. But then at the same time, I was like, you know, this has been years later and we still remember it. We still talk about it. Where I was like, that's well, the part that's been successful. Yeah. I was like, maybe <laughs> she did win. I mean, I think she kind of did win because, like, she's probably in a history book for that versus if she had, like, you know, whatever else she did. Right. Like, but that was, you know, that's a thing. Yeah. If her outcome was only to get people talking about her, then she succeeded. Um, yeah. But if she wanted people to talk about her, uh, the way people talk about a Chris Rock uh, or Howard Stern or somebody, I don't know, like somebody who, or, or Sarah Silverman even, then I don't know that she quite did what she intended. <laughs> but I think that's also think like her persona them. though, right? Like even like her joke was that she's the life of the D-list, right? So it's right. like, it's always about her doing something shocking to get attention, which I was like, well, I guess that's actually on brand. Like it would, <laughs> It would yeah, almost okay. be weirder if, like, Chris Rock did it. It would almost oh. be stranger, but it makes yeah. way more sense that it's uh, her 
doing things to get attention because like even her act, like I watched one of her specials and it was just stories about other famous people. Yeah. And I, but I noticed um, Perez Hilton does that too. Like yeah. he wrote a book and it was just name dropping people and like bad stories about them. I was like, well, I guess that's a, a genre. It's not a genre that I personally would want to do, but at the same time I was like, I, I see, I guess what space they fill. Yeah, I get that. Let's talk about because you mentioned that you are producing shows what sort of shows are you producing so um before the pandemic i was producing i had this one show um in north hollywood which was fun it was like a fun bar show Mm -hmm. and then i was producing um these fundraisers for rain which was it or not was is the national the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization so we're raising money for them they run the um uh anti-sexual abuse hotline Mm -hmm. and then I was also running the show where like comedians would perform in their underwear um, and that was pretty fun but then you know the pandemic came and then just everything went crazy and so started to do online shows but I'm taking a break from that at the moment yeah okay Um, why are you taking a break from the online shows I think like i I felt a little bit of zoom fatigue Mm -hmm. like I really like I like zoom but i think at the same time like doing a comedy show every week on zoom i just felt like other people were doing it a lot too where i was like i don't know if it's just too much like zoom comedy at the moment um i don't know maybe i'll I'll get back into it maybe in january or not but like i just felt like i was like well is this the same as uh real life i don't know so I guess that was my thought process. It's tough to do stand-up on Zoom. You can um, do certain things. uh, Like storytelling, I feel like, oddly works a little better than stand-up on Zoom. Oh, that's, yeah, that makes sense. Just, I don't know why that is. I guess because so much of stand-up feels like, um, hey, we're having an experience together. I'm, I'm cutting up to get you to laugh, and I'm kind of feeding off of the way you're responding to me in order to do that. And you, mm-hmm. you kind of can't do that. Uh, even if you have an quote unquote audience there who's laughing, you can't look someone in the eyes and, and point at them and, and, say <laughs> and just have that kind of moment. And that, that, that I think hurts it. But in regards to zoom fatigue, there were, I noticed cause I was following it for the, uh, for there it is for the website, how many, Comedy shows are online for people to check out. And I think people in April, for valiant reasons, decided I'm going to put out shows. Mm-hmm. And you're right. There were a ton. And, yeah. And I would say like 90% of those aren't happening right now. Yeah. Um, and I, <laughs> I think there that. is the fatigue. And I think there was – I think there are several things. Some of it was it's just not super enjoyable to do comedy on Zoom. And also – the big thing I think is maybe at that time we were all thinking, okay, let's be optimistic. Maybe it'll just be a couple of months and then we can get back to normal this summer and doing shows and bars. And then when time went on and that wasn't looking plausible, I think that also made people say like, well, this isn't something I want to do all the time this way. I want to do it all the time the way we're doing it pre COVID. 
And this was supposed to be a temporary couple of months thing. So I think even on a subconscious level, that's how people responded to that, which is completely understandable. I also think another thing that's happening is that people are now starting to do these speakeasy illegal outdoor shows. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, if they're going to do that, why do they want to be on Zoom? Like, I, for the most part, I like I'm staying in like I'm like, I don't want to get sick like at all. But like I see these people and they're doing these like, you know, hidden shows because like in L.A., you're not allowed to do any type of shows, even if it's outdoor. But people are still doing it. And it's like, well, if everyone's going to be outside and doing these, why would why are they going to do Zoom? It's like they just don't want to. That makes sense. That makes sense. And then also here in New York, there are a couple of places that were doing some outdoor things. Oh, wow. Like this in the back back of their bar or whatever. And yeah. they were keeping people socially distant. It, it was just like Chappelle's thing where people were at their own table and six feet away from other tables and uh, had to wear a mask except for when they were drinking or stuff like that. Like I think even the comics were wearing masks. So it, it, it worked. Oh, that's like, good. Like yeah. here it's been kind of like – here it's kind of been buck wild where yeah. like – the actual like um, like venues, um, the health department come and shut them down. And so they're not allowed to. So people do like things in their backyard. People do things in the park, on the beach. And like, you know, they'll show photos and people are just like smoking blunts together. They're like taking pictures together. It's like, you know, they're hugging. I was like, I don't yeah, I, I don't want to. Yeah, I don't want that. I don't want to also offend people by not hugging them without a mask. But I'm like, no, thanks. I'm staying right. Well, in my home hometown, not my hometown, the town I lived before <laughs> living here, I saw that uh, there are a couple of one or two open mics came back up, and I saw some pictures from it, and it looked like maybe half the people were wearing masks, on stage, <laughs> but everyone else wasn't. It's like, but you're all using the same mic. Oh, <laughs> I don't know that I would be doing that if i were there right now <laughs> i know it's like uh, i guess that they clean it but the chance of them I'm cleaning sure they it, do though, but uh, you know probably not <laughs> yeah I, especially at one point it was like you couldn't even find any clorox wipes or anything like that you couldn't find disinfectant yeah. wipes so it was like ah, i'm not gonna bother uh, <laughs> <laughs> well we've reached the end of the episode it's time to create something together okay And I was really fascinated with the process you were talking about with regards to writing a book. Um, What is the simple way that we can sort of create something together with that? I don't want to. You, since you it's, it's something you do for work, I don't want to make you (laughs) over. No, no, this is fine. Okay, no. (laughs) Um, So, but you said a simple way to create a book. Yeah, or like a like if we're gonna write a book. what would that process be? Uh, we've, you've talked about it. It's uh, come up with the characters, know the story you want to tell, put out an outline. Um, could we go through that process uh, and, and sort of demonstrate that real quick? Oh, sure. That'd be cool. So one of the first things that I do is I tell people, come up with your log line okay. where it's like um, one or two sentences that are so clear that if you – verbally say it people can imagine what um the book cover or poster or whatever would look like just from your two sentences so it kind of needs to have the who what 
when and where, and also the genre. Like, it's just so clear. If you can come up with that in two sentences, you're ready to go to the next step. Oh, wow. Okay. So what does that sound like? Do you have an example that you can throw out? Uh, sure. Uh, so I guess for Hell's Game, it is um, on Halloween night, four teenagers take the school nerd to the cemetery where he is snatched by demons. Afterwards, they must play a game in hell to rescue his soul. Wow. Then so that's you all get the very whole I'm yeah, so you get the whole the cemetery. I'm seeing uh I'm seeing the cemetery. I'm seeing hell. <laughs> I, you know the genre based on what's happening. Absolutely. So it's the same thing. So it's like if you can say it in one or two sentences where it's that clear, then you're ready. Yeah, okay. So it's kind of like uh uh husband and father, Timothy Chalamet. Is <laughs> 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 uh I'm thinking of something that's like, uh, you know, living a normal life until such and such, you know, like something like that. Um, yeah. or, or, or I guess you can even end it with some sort of like, he never expected blah, blah, blah. And that, does that sort of sound like a thriller? Does that kind of convey yeah. that sort of idea? Yeah, so it's kind of like that where it's like, you know, you know who the two main people are and then you kind of set up they're living this normal life. So when you even named like Timothy Chalamet, I was like, oh, they're like kind of like suburban, you know, maybe like middle class people. And then but something will change. But now it's like, oh, what will that change be? Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. And then when you start doing well, I guess you said next would be the characters. So once you know the the log line, then you're ready to move on to the character. So now let's say like the dad, what's the dad's job? What's his age? Um, what does he like to do? What are his mannerisms and things like that? Do you break that down? The same with like the teen son. It's like, is he cool at school? Uh, is he not cool? Like, what does he dress like? What, what kind of foods does he eat? Like, like little details like that really start to paint a picture of who these people are. Mm. And then once you know the characters, like once you know a character, you can put them in any situation and you should be able to figure out what that person would do. And if that is ever unclear, then you don't know the character enough and you have to go back and like add more details. Interesting. And that's every single character that you expect to present in the book or just the main characters that you should have? Um, pretty much every character. Because, for instance, even a small character of, like, let's say, um, like, you know, when we're talking a little bit about a coffee shop and, like, the mm -hmm. vibe there, right? You don't necessarily, with the barista, know, need to know their whole backstory. But you do need to know that if I came in and I'm a stranger, how would that barista treat me? Like, if something went wrong what would that person do? Like that kind of thing. So you just have to know these answers. It has to be so crystal clear to you as the writer that you created them. But then the reader will also be like, oh, that's what I expected based on what you gave me. Ah, interesting. Uh, so it's sort of like setting up something and uh, then kind of giving them the punchline, if we were to put it in comedy terms. Yeah, exactly. Because, like, I don't know, you probably have seen so many, like, films and whatnot where they really, the writers will set up this great character, these great worlds. And then, like, halfway through, you're like, that character wouldn't do that. Like, it yeah. makes you mad. I think Game of Thrones is a really good example of that, where you're like, wait, what? Like, why did this happen? <laughs> and I think that's the same thing. It's that, like, if you create a character, you, sh you should be able to guess what they would do. Mm, that's great. 
Yeah, and I think a lot of people do sort of, um, particularly TV shows, when they have kind of maybe gone a little too long in the tooth, uh, the creators can sort of, what's the word, um, uh, kind of go against what the integrity of the character that they had before. That seems to happen a lot. Mm-hmm. And it makes it makes the audience mad, <laughs> you know. And yeah. that's the thing it's like you can't you can't do that. So it's like um, <laughs> I guess that's the thing. It's like you need to create a character where it's like it's true to the character, not true to the plot. Right. Okay. And then you start plotting it out with an outline. Yeah. So it's like um, once you know the character. For instance, like um, let's say a character that everyone knows. Like uh, let's say. Walter White from Breaking Bad, right? Like, um, uh, and you say, oh, he's on vacation. Like, that's the story you have started with. And it's like, because you've created a character that's so clear, if you set up a situation like he's on vacation and he runs out of money, you should be able to guess as a writer, like what will happen based on the character you created. And then from that, that will lead to the next plot point, the next plot point. Oh, interesting. And should you kind of have in your mind already a beginning, middle, and end before you start going to those different plot points? I think you definitely need to have that. So it's kind of like you want to have the just the general idea of where this story is. But then also it's like if you create a character and it leads nowhere to where you originally wanted to go, you need to tweak either your plot or you need to tweak your character. But you can't force two things that don't match together or then you're just going to have crap essentially you know it's almost like i guess using game of thrones as an example again where it's like if they really wanted that giant you know all those twists ending at the very end they probably needed to do more time in between like you know what had happened because it was such a jump you know Mm -hmm. but i think what happened is like they knew their ending but they didn't take the time to like get there interesting and at that point, you're ready to start writing the the whole story, the manuscript, maybe? Yeah. So if you like are really satisfied with your outline, it ended up where you wanted it to go and it looks like it's going to be like the page number you want. So like genres, it depends. Like, um, for instance, a young adult novel, you can get away with just like 40 to 50,000 words. But if you're writing like a you know novel for adults, it probably needs to be more than the 100,000 range. Mm-hmm. But if you know that you can fill up that space, then I think you're ready to go. Excellent. Well, there it is. Thanks so much for being on the podcast, Teresa. <laughs> yeah, thank you for having me. This is really fun. I enjoyed talking to you about writing and comedy and all that. And we enjoyed having her. I hope you enjoyed listening to her. And you can follow her on her website, TeresaLowWriter.com, and on Twitter at TeresaLow underscore tweets, and on Instagram and Facebook at TeresaLowWriter. Of course, links in bio. And don't forget to follow us at There It Is Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Did I say Instagram? Okay, well, I'm definitely old now. You can follow me on Twitter at Jason Far Jokes and on Instagram at Jason Far Picks. I wonder if Instagram even exists. Let's start it. And then like everyone's parents can just, just all older people can. I don't want to get into ageism. Until next time, be good to each other.
The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr. (laughs) 